Welcome to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling, a conversation about governments, technologies, and innovation. The ongoing season, Winter 2023, is loosely based on my upcoming book, Governments and Innovation, The Economic Developer's Guide to Our Future. The book will be available for purchase in Amazon during Q1 2023. Our theme song is by New Orleans jazz icon Leroy Jones. Welcome to this Deep Pockets episode where we talk about how to commercialize scientific research. We've already looked at the topic from different angles in previous episodes, but there's one angle that we didn't cover yet, and that's productization. How does science turn into a product? To talk about this, I brought into my studio someone who is both a scientist and a product creator. Tanya Ramond, MBA, PhD, principal and owner, Sapien Consulting, and deep tech commercialization and product strategy expert, expert on quantum technology, and where to play certified practitioner. Thanks for joining Deep Pockets, Tanya. Oh, thank you for asking me, Petra. So in my intro, I listed the various, uh, should I say, tracks in your professional career. Let's go through them one by one as they're also interesting. First, in general, you have a science background. How did you get into products and productization? I mean, the other people that I know have a PhD in physics, you know, they're creating science, publishing papers and speaking at science conferences. So scientists don't always make good commercializers. Yeah, no, um, that's, I agree with that statement. Um, so yeah, this is a good question. When I moved from academia to industry, I was able to pick up, learn engineering best principles, which form the basis for building technical products. But there was a transfer transformation that happened outside the technical realm that permanently altered my thinking. So I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to act as an engineering manager for several internal R&D programs at a company where I worked. There was one instance when I was brought in to lead a team of engineers and on an internally funded project that also had a very, fairly sizable budget. The direction we received was essentially build us a widget, or I'll call it that. <laughs> and and I said, okay, no problem, we can get it done. Um, but then the me and the group started thinking, you know, they, we started asking questions like, who are we building it for? Why do they want it? What do they want to do with it? Why do they want it from us instead of another entity? How much would they pay for it? And how much would they not pay for it? And these questions all made sense because the answers are huge drivers for how you design this widget, especially impactful in terms of the size of of the physical object, uh, the budget, the complexity of of the technology that goes into it, which translates into risk and other programmatic factors. But the amazing thing was that we never got answers to these questions. And although I could not articulate, articulate it at the time, it really bothered me that so much time, money, and engineering enthusiasm is being spent on something that did not appear to have a business case. As I went on in my career, however, I started to see that this build it and they will come approach is the rule instead of the exception, especially in deep tech areas. And I thought there has to be another way. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I, I can relate. We've had many people on this show already, and I often ask about their background, how they became who they are today. 
and the answer differs every time. So thanks for this intro. So to stay with the theme of productizing and and based on the story you just uh, told us, I want to ask you about something called Market Opportunity Navigator. Tell us what it is and how did you discover it? Yeah, so this is a tool that I that I'm working with currently. Um, I first came upon the Market Opportunity Navigator tool uh, reading a blog post that was done in 2019, written by Steve Blank. If you don't know who he is, he's sometimes referred to as the father of modern entrepreneurism. Um, He's really the first person to proclaim that a startup company is not simply a small version of a big company. Rather, it is an entirely different beast. Mm -hmm. Steve is known for articulating many tools in what's called the Lean Startup Toolkit, and they are very, uh, very well, um, very well understood and widely used today by entrepreneurs. Now, these tools focus on how to start and build a young business in a market that is new or perhaps does not yet exist. However, they share the same starting point of a single market segment they have identified to work within. But in reality, most new technologies could be applied in multiple ways in multiple market segments. And many of those market segments will differ in terms of their potential financial yield, their implementation challenges, and how badly the customers need the solution. So how do you choose? This was a topic of the Steve Blank blog post that I read um, to introduce the Market Opportunity Navigator as a new tool that addresses this very underserved problem. It was created by business professors Mark Gruber and Sharon Tal. It is based on years of entrepreneurial research and provides really a lightweight tool to identify and systematically analyze multiple market opportunities to select their target market. That's super. Yeah, I've read Steve Blank. Uh, He's he's a real visionary. So uh, just to remind ourselves that you have PhD in physics and you have an MBA. So, you know, to round up on on your background and, and this tool, I wanted to make sure that our audience knows that you're available for consulting. Maybe tell us some examples of what your consulting offering may look like. Who's it meant for? Uh, how does it work? Are you answer- answering the questions that you just laid out? And what do your clients get out of it? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for asking that question. Yes, my consulting company, Sapien Consulting, uh, we f- focus on commercialization and product strategy in deep tech companies. So deep tech, or sometimes called hard tech, is a term for typically hardware-based products that have a solid R&D basis and typically take longer to develop and require greater capital expenditure. So um, areas such as aerospace, quantum, clean tech, robotics, etc. In addition to facilitating working with the market opportunity navigator for teams, I also help them do the research they need to understand their chosen customers and to validate their market, market hypotheses. Knowing that you are solving a real problem for a customer based on direct customer interviews and having the confidence that that data provides is a very powerful way to de-risk a business hypothesis. Without doing that research to tell you that you're moving in the right direction, you're simply going on instinct. And although the mythology is that entrepreneurs are successful because they have the right instincts, in fact, that is not true. And I should also mention that it is not just entrepreneurs that benefit from these tools. You know, more mature and bigger companies know they have to innovate to ensure their long-term survival. And the same approaches that work for entrepreneurs can be easily adapted to intrapreneurs as well and give them that edge to stay ahead of their competition. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of me. I ran 
a few startups. So my question would have been, should I do this or should I do that? But when I worked in a large corporation, my question would have been, should I do this now or should I do this later? And, uh, you know, what, what you're just telling me is uh, you, you have tools for everyone. And, you know, I've worked with you for a while, so I, I, I can attest to those qualities. You're also very active at the Colorado Photonics Industry Association and the Colorado Quantum Ecosystem. And uh, I understand the connections is we, uh, you're, you have a PhD in physics and your PhD was on, and I'm going to read, probing fundamental molecular structure of negative and neutral molecules using UV laser photoelectron spectroscopy. I hope I got that right. So maybe, <laughs> okay, describe to us what that means. Uh, you know, us who are completely ignorant on the subject and tell us how these industrial and business groups work. So what's your role there? How do you see the future of these industries? Yes. Well, um, so you're asking, what is the connection between this incomprehensible thesis title and what fuels me now? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a great question. Basically, uh, my PhD title is a fancy way of saying that I use lasers to zap a negative ion, uh, which is an atom with an electron on it, and that kicks off that extra electron. And by measuring what happens next, it tells us about fundamental structure of that molecule probing fundamental molecular structures and investigation of its quantum properties. So I was at the University of Colorado. And at that time, when I was getting my PhD, um, you know, it was it was a world leader in laser based quantum physics, but it remains so today even more as a world class leader in quantum physics. I was surrounded by university labs, all with different ways to probe and exploit quantum phenomena in the academic world. And what is so exciting is that today we're starting to see some promise for quantum control moving from exclusively an academic pursuit to exploring broader commercial and societal applications. And so, yeah, you mentioned CPIA or the Colorado Photonics Industry Association, which is a, an amazing institution. Um, photonics is just a fancy way of saying the use and manipulation of light. You know, a laser is a photonic device, as is a lens and a camera like you have on your smartphone. So it's a very um, broad, broadly applied technology to many basic and not so basic pursuits, commercial pursuits. Much of this technology is used to harness the power of quantum phenomena, involves photonics to manipulate atoms and molecules. Great stuff. Um, I noticed you, uh, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn. So I noticed you recently visited the University of Colorado, the GILA. Uh, you were speaking with current graduate students about career paths beyond academia. Congratulations and thank you. So do you do a lot of gigs like this? Do you talk to students? What's the main message you tell them? And how is your relationship with the academia since you left it? Are they like, uh, you know, you're a quitter, don't come back? Or how does that work? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so I've done several of these types of talks. I find that when you're in graduate school, your education is very tailored to a future career in academia. This is starting to change a little bit, but we're not there yet. Typically, you don't see many resources for folks who want to learn about careers outside of academia. And so at this talk that you mentioned and, and others, I find there's a real thirst for learning about various quote-unquote alternative options, especially coming from someone like me from quote-unquote within the fold. And I think my relationship with academia is great. Um, I have a huge respect for the education, the work performed in academic institutions. It's inspiring, fascinating, and foundational work. And it fills a critical role in our desire as humans to answer the question of why. In addition, 
I unhesitatingly feel that it is no less noble of a pursuit for those who want to take these discoveries and move them into commercial or industrial applications to make a broader impact in our society and to solve real problems. I'm a firm believer that great technology should make a great impact. It's my current mission. Yeah, that's actually a great quote. So it doesn't matter if, you know, the technology or the science is done, uh, you know, in order to publish scientific papers and take the science forward, or if it's done to create products that will take humankind forward, it's still based on the same scientific roots and uh, making a great impact. I love that. Uh, do you have any last words on how you see the relationship between publicly funded academia and private companies? So, you know, this podcast is uh, supporting the book that's coming out that is on government and innovation. So in each episode, we talk about publicly funded things and privately funded things and how innovation can best take our economies forward. So if we just take Colorado as an example, do you think that both camps, the academia and the private companies, do they understand and respect where the other camp is coming from? I don't know if camp is the right word. I'm sorry if if that's offensive, but where, where's the, you know, the other party is coming from? and what the drivers are. And is there anything that you'd like to say about the Colorado state government as they are doing everything that they should, or like, are they, in your opinion, doing everything they should to get more products out of the labs and more startups finding success in Colorado? Yeah, these are good, really good questions. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, and I'm speaking generally here, um, there's not much understanding within academia, at least at the graduate level of what a career outside academia really means. Um, and I saw that last week when I was talking to these graduate students. I mean, they're hungry for this information. And But here, you know, I'm not just talking about R&D that's done in a private company as opposed to done it, being done in a university lab. I mean, um, there's not as much understanding about what is required to turn a technology uh, into a product in terms of both technical development, but also market development. You know, there, there's more entrepreneurial education being infused into the university education these days, if you know where to look for it. I think the trend is going that way, but it's uh, we should definitely support that. It would also be nice to see more entrepreneurial education happening, not just at the university level, but at other educational levels. Um, and I think that internships, especially done early in the educational path, are a great way to motivate this. And, you know, from the Colorado stand standpoint, there's some fantastic programs happening here, supported both wholly and partially by the state. And one example is the Colorado OEDIT, which is the Office of Economic Development and International Trade. Um, they sponsor early stage capital grants in advanced industries. Again, advanced industries is another way of saying pretty much deep tech. But their program is one round of funding twice a year that you can compete for. And I, I think this fills such an important niche for young companies here in deep tech. Um, the dollar amounts, you know, they line up on par with angel or even seed precede stage funding, but they're grants, so there's not the dilutive effect. And so that's super huge for, for young companies. So, and I've enjoyed supporting this program as a reviewer of the, the different grants that come in uh, asking for approval. I've done this for several years and have seen several companies build and grow coming out of winning this award. So that's, that's you know, that's a real validation of this program. I love it. Yeah, that's a, a call to action to call for Colorado companies and startups to seek out this program and other states to maybe 
look at what Colorado is doing and emulate and, and launch your own programs like that. Tanya Ramond, MBA, PhD, principal and owner at Sapien Consulting. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Petra. You've listened to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling. To subscribe to content and to pre-order the book Governments and Innovation, The Economic Developer's Guide to Our Future, please go to petrasoderling.com. The wonderful music you heard is by Leroy Jones, an iconic New Orleans Jazz Hall of Fame trumpetist. You can find this and other Leroy Jones tunes at your favorite online or offline music store. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe, like, rate, and share our episodes. It means a lot to me. Thank you.